You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 10th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. The latest on the Israel-Hamas war. Has Hamas advertently or otherwise done Vladimir Putin a favour? And can school kids be taught to use AI to not cheat? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Enrico Franceschini and Aliona Hlivko will discuss today's big stories. And our On This Day historical series will recall the peculiar crisis which briefly seemed like the beginning of a Canadian civil war. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica, and by Aliona Hlivko, Managing Director at the Henry Jackson Society. Hello to you both. Hey. Good evening. Uh, we will have more from you both shortly, but we will start with what can probably be called day four of the Israel-Hamas war of 2022. It is now known that more than 1,000 Israelis have been killed in the Hamas assault, which began on Saturday. And within the last few hours, further missile strikes have been reported in Ashkelon, an Israeli city near the Gaza Strip. Inside Gaza itself, health ministry sources say that at least 830 people have been killed in ongoing retaliatory strikes by Israel. Well, I'm joined first of all by Shana Lowe, communications advisor to the Norwegian Refugee Council based in Jerusalem. Um, Shana, first of all, the Norwegian Refugee Council is one of those NGOs which has continued to operate uh, in Gaza in recent years. What have you been hearing from your staff members who are there? Hi, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me on. Yes, so we have operated in Gaza since 2009, following Operation Cast Lead, the the escalation and hostilities that began December of 2008. So we've been there for 15 years, uh, and we have uh, we have 52 Palestinian staff members on the ground in Gaza. Um, they live there. They work there. What we are hearing from them is that they are terrified. All 52 were accounted for during a headcount earlier this morning, um, but 17 out of those 52 have been forced to flee their homes, either because of um, direct or indirect attacks on their homes or because they've been told to evacuate because their neighborhoods are under uh, are, are being targeted. Um, we are hearing from them that people are terrified. As as your listeners may know, there is no safe place to go in Gaza. This is one of the most densely populated uh, places in, in the world, and, and there really are no safe spaces. We're hearing reports of, of civilians um, out in the streets with their belongings. Uh, their homes have been destroyed, and they have nowhere to go and no idea where to go. I, that is a partial answer to what I was about to ask you, which is the question of where displaced people in Gaza and there are now reported to be more than 100,000 of them can go. As you correctly point out, it is a tiny space. It's very, very crowded and it's it's quite hard to communicate how oppressive it is, I think, to people.
people uh, who have not been there. I mean, it's a while since I was last there, and I don't think it's got any less crowded since. Um, where are people such as those 17 staff members you mentioned able to go? Are they just trying to find sanctuary with friends and relatives and you know, hoping that they're in a relatively lucky part of Gaza? So in terms of our colleagues, all of them who have been displaced from their homes are staying with friends or family. I just about an hour ago spoke to the head of our office in Gaza who told me that he was hosting his um, extended family in his house because they had been displaced and sought shelter with him. Um, there, as I believe what I saw most recently this afternoon from uh, the United Nations was that over 200 and a thousand Palestinians have been displaced. That's almost 10% of Gaza's 2.3 million population. And uh, and about 150,000 of them or so, 100, I believe it's around 140, 45,000 of them are currently seeking shelter in UN schools. There are 83 UN schools that are designated as safe spaces for Palestinians in Gaza to seek shelter. But even those places are not necessarily safe. Uh, earlier today, I heard of already two schools that had suffered some degree of damage um, due to due to the ongoing airstrikes. We have also heard in recent days from the Israeli government talk of a, a total siege of Gaza, uh, cutting off water, electricity, gas, medicines, uh, basically everything. Um if Israel is serious about that, can you give us some idea of what effect that would have on life in Gaza, even absent the airstrikes? I mean, this would be catastrophic. The The population, even prior to this um, recent escalation in hostilities, was already living um, under a, a siege that, that caused great challenges and difficulties. What we're hearing now from our staff after the electricity was cut, I believe two nights ago now, um, is that people are getting electricity for anywhere between half an hour to maximum four hours per day. Fuel for generators is running out. This is going to lead to a massive crisis in hospitals, which are already um, struggling and, and working to, to on, on emergency plans um, and, and reliant on generators. We've also heard that uh, as of yesterday, the water was also cut out. We're also hearing about targeting of civilian infrastructure like water uh water wells and other water sources within the Gaza Strip. So this, I mean, we are looking at the potential of the starvation of a of a civilian population of 2.3 million people who have absolutely no say in what's happening. Uh, they didn't make the decision uh, for Hamas to, to infiltrate Israel over the weekend, and they certainly have no say in what Israel is deciding to do to them. Uh, I do want to mention that there is the Rafah crossing uh, from Egypt, which would have the potential to bring in supplies. But earlier today, we heard that Israel uh, targeted that uh, crossing with airstrikes and artillery shells, um, and that uh, goods goods were not brought in through through the crossing, as as um, of course we were hoping they would be uh, delivered. And just finally, can you tell us a bit about what things are like where you are? Are you seeing any sign of trouble occurring in East Jerusalem or on the wider West Bank? Yeah, so I think this isn't the first time that there's been an escalation in Gaza, and we've seen um, 
the Israeli Israeli forces or Israeli settlers use this as an opportunity to uh, to to commit further crimes or uh, or target Palestinian civilians in the West Bank. So in East Jerusalem, just uh, very close to the NRC office, twice we've seen um, attacks on Palestinian cars. Just last night, there was a video I saw today, a surveillance video of someone throwing Molotov cocktails. All the Palestinian cars parked on the street had their windshields uh, smashed. And I also saw um, two videos of settlers in uh, near my neighborhood in East Jerusalem uh, stopping their cars, getting out, and appearing to be um, chasing after Palestinians just last night. We're also hearing reports um, from, from our colleagues and the people we work with and serve in the West Bank about increased settler attacks. Um, it, it's very difficult because of movement closures for um, for internationals to access communities that are at risk. We've already seen this year uh, over a thousand Palestinians forcibly transferred, uh, largely in part due to settler violence. And now there's no uh, ability to access communities that are at further risk of, of forcible transfer um, and be able to support them and, and protect them from uh, the settler violence, which already even prior to this weekend had reached uh, record highs uh, uh, that had never been documented before by the by the United Nations. Shana Lowe with the Norwegian Refugee Council in Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us. Let's bring in our panel now, Enrico Franceschini and Adeliano Livko. The Israel-Palestine conflict, of course, attracts massive global attention even when hostilities are at a relatively low ebb. At a time like this, it is not unreasonably occluding almost all other news, obviously including an ongoing major war in Europe. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky was notably swift and unequivocal in expressing solidarity with Israel, at least notably swifter and less equivocal than Israel has been in expressing solidarity with Ukraine. Russia's President Vladimir Putin seems to be trying to take a pass beyond a vague suggestion that this is somehow all America's fault. Um, Alyona, first of all, by dismal coincidence, the first day of the Hamas attack was in fact President Putin's birthday. Um, But is this kind of a present for him? Does it take the heat off him? Any chaos and disruption is a present for Putin. Indeed, he thrives in that environment. We have seen how much he's capitalized on the war in Nagorno-Karabakh. The tensions in Europe and between Kosovo and Serbia also play to his hand because anything that can distract the consolidated West and its support for Ukraine, including distracting funding um, and aid that's coming towards Ukraine, that's the greatest gift for him. Now, whether we can say if Russia was involved in that or not, um, that is a different question. I don't like to upplay what Putin's Russia is capable of. Mm. Um, people here in the West tend to think that it's much more powerful than it actually is. Um, in fact, um, of course, they would capitalize on anything that has already happened. And there were some assumptions that perhaps Hamas was better trained, that any terrorist group could have been trained with the paragliders, the ground and air force attack at the same time. Whether it was Iran behind it, that is yet to be found out. Whether Russia provided any assistance or support, maybe through its um, private military companies like Wagner Group, etc., which do tend to operate across the world. I think we will find out all of that information 
soon enough. Um, I would avoid speculation. Of course, Ukraine doesn't want to be the country who cries wolf. Mm. You know, anything that happens bad in the world is now Russia. But is it certainly uh, taking advantage of it? And will it try to make the situation worse? Absolutely. I mean, Enrico, it probably is a reach uh, to sort of perceive Vladimir Putin as the sinister puppet master behind all this, as Aliona quite rightly suggests. Um, Russia's enterprises abroad are more often characterised by, well, just rank amateurishness and ineptitude rather than the kind of sophistication that would be needed to start a full-blown war in the Middle East in order to get yourself out of trouble. But it is nonetheless the case that Ismail Hanya, among other Hamas officials, have recently recently visited Moscow. Um, Is there any particularly good reason why they would have done that? Well, uh, they could have looked for, uh, you know, funds. They could have looked for a relationship with the secret services that you mentioned before or the paramilitary groups that uh, Aliona mentioned. And I agree, you cannot speculate. You you should just look at the facts, which Mm. are enough. I mean, who is the biggest, uh, one of the biggest allies in the war against Ukraine for Russia? Iran. And uh, who is the biggest allies of Hamas in Palestine? Ir- Iran, again. So, I mean, it's not difficult to imagine that there is something going on between that maybe Russia was alerted or knew uh, that something was uh, brewing over there and that uh, maybe it's too too much to imagine that hackers in Russia help to uh, make dysfunction in the Israeli system of alarms. For that, you can you can count on Iran. Iran is already capable of it, or Hezbollah, uh, their, their friends in, in Lebanon. Uh, but, um, you know, when uh, President Bush used to speak about the axis of evil and in the new axis of evil now we have certainly Russia we have Iran well Hamas joins a nice company well indeed so um Aljona, if this is a gift for president putin it is obviously um a difficulty for your country's president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, to navigate because it's obviously important to him and to Ukraine that, you know, he keeps attention focused and he keeps funding focused and he keeps military assistance focused on the war your country is fighting. Um, Do you get the sense that he's yet figured out how he's going to navigate this? He did give, well, he did issue a statement as well as expressing solidarity with Israel, um, trying to yoke uh, Hamas and Russia to together as a, a similar kind of proposition, but I'm not sure that one really sticks, does it? It's hard to tell without having the facts on the table, mm. right? I I do agree with Francesco when he says that, look, Iran and Russia are the axis of evil now, and both Ukrainians and Israelis were targeted by Iranian drones and, and weapons. Uh, so there's definitely a similarity there. Um, I had a very interesting conversation yesterday when I hosted one of the Ukrainian MPs, Dmitry Natalucha, at, at um, um, our think tank, where he said that there's another front that Israel is actually perhaps only getting up to speed to fighting, and that's the information front, because mm. he said that the level of disinformation that's going around about Israel, the war there, um, about you know blurring the lines between uh, getting unprovokedly attacked by terrorists and tying that with the whole Muslim world and almost creating a new narrative that it's because mostly Christian countries have backed Israel and mostly Muslim countries backed um, Hamas or the attempts that were created there, that that almost 
generates a new division in the world. And of course, Russia is a pro in, in that. And we're witnessing online that great battle of narratives is now being played out. And he did say that Ukrainians have already provided their tools and mechanisms that, that we've used in the war of disinformation to the Israeli government, as well as potentially some tech and IT skills. Um, so Ukraine will definitely try to help out, help Israel in the most sincere way wherever we can, according to our capacity and, and resources, because we know that, you know, with any other war, we are going to be lacking resources and attention uh, from the West. But of course, there is no one life more important than the other. Um, I think we have gone through 18 months of, the, of those brutal attacks and targeting to understand that. Um, whether the helping Israel will distract from helping Ukraine. I'm not sure. I hope it doesn't. Uh, there is an aspect of that we will come back to later in the show. But uh, just before we move on, uh, Enrico, you reported from Israel for many, many years. You know the country very well. Um, and you reported from the Palestinian territories as well. The thing that I don't understand about this, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, is when Hamas embarked on whatever they thought they were embarking on on Saturday, where is, and I don't even want to talk about the obvious moral depravity involved here, that's fairly self-evident, but what was the strategic logic from their point of view? Because they must know by now better than anybody that Israel will always respond with massive disproportionate violence, um, especially to an attack on its own territory and its own people like this. And they would know that this is... This is surely the blaze of glory for Hamas. They know that beyond this there is no Hamas, don't they? It's possible. You're not the only one who is surprised by mm. by this behavior because the uh, Mossad was surprised as well. <laughs> the Shin Bet was surprised as well. Okay, I, did, I'm now feeling a little bit better about being surprised myself. <laughs> they did myself. not expect it. They did not expect it because they thought, well, Hamas, they don't want to risk to be obliterated by Israel, so they will not attack us. So what can you say? Again, maybe Iran, who doesn't care what happens to Hamas and the Palestinian population, used this uh, uh, as a lever to boycott the possibility of a Saudi Arabia-Israel peace plan that would have been a game changer in the, in, the, in, the, in the Middle East. At the same time, there's the competition of the Islamic Jihad and other groups, radical groups have are for Hamas. Hamas needs to show they are the tough guys in the neighborhood. The fact that uh, um, Jenin, Nablus, other cities in the West Bank are, you know, rebelling against Israel and taking the initiative. So Hamas does not want to look moderate uh, with their financiers and in the big uh, uh, game of, of the Middle East. Um, everything is possible. It's also possible that they are preparing something. They are convinced that they will be able to resist whatever Israel does. And they know there is a fact Israel might uh, decapitate Hamas, but cannot uh, get rid of two, two million Palestinians who are still going to be there. And so in the long game they play, they say, OK, I will not do it, but my children, my grandchildren will still there fighting Israel. And the more people die, the more there will be a revolt in the Arab world against Israel. I think this is uh, the possible game that they are playing, which is a game that which will change Israel too, in, in a way, because Israel 
Israel will pay at one point the consequence of uh, this big mistake. It was not only the surprise, but also the fact that they didn't pay enough attention to the Palestinian issue. And uh, I always say, Golda Meir won the Yom Kippur War, which started in mm-hmm. 1973 with a surprise attack. Six months later, she was forced to resign. And I think down the road, Netanyahu will end badly. Well, let's look at a curious subplot of the current Middle Eastern crisis, and this was the row that erupted within the EU earlier in the week. The European Commissioner for Neighbourhood and Enlargement, the former Hungarian diplomat Oliver Varelli, dramatically announced that all European Commission payments to Palestinians would be suspended, only for several other EU sources to insist otherwise. But it did raise the question of what can or should happen with aid to Palestine, especially under current circumstances. Um, First of all, uh, Enrico, did uh, Commissioner Varelli seem to have just gone off on one there? Possibly. I, th- <laughs> I think so. I think so. Um, of course, with, with the, one thing is the aid, the humanitarian aid. The other thing is funds that you're not sure where they will go, to, in which hands, mm. if Hamas takes some of it. Then uh, there is always the, the big uh, issue, which is also, uh, we have also heard about Russia. Uh, when you have sanction of any type, you, you say, uh, the population that uh, suffers this sanction will hate you because you put the sanction or will hate their leaders because they say, why do you put us in this situation? Uh, possibly a minority of people, of the two million Palestinians in Gaza support Hamas. The last elections were in 2006, almost 20 years ago, lots of suffering for Gazans before. People tend to forget that in the good times, 100,000 Palestinians from Gaza every day went to work mm-hmm. in Israel and came back in the evening bringing money. And this was a, you know, a cooperation that uh, had peace down the road as a possible result. And so they don't have that anymore. So it's, it's difficult to say uh, what, uh, how the EU or others should behave. Um, Adriano, we have seen some countries, Germany and Austria, suspending aid, and that does seem to be not so much a gesture of uh, dissatisfaction with uh, Palestine or Palestinians, more a sort of holding pattern while they try to figure out what on earth is going on and what is going to happen next. But is there as a general principle always going to be a problem with supplying aid And the question also arises with somewhere like Afghanistan now as well. Is there always going to be a problem with supplying aid to a country or an area run by a regime like that? You kind of have to accept that some of this money is going to end up in the hands of unpleasant people. And you also kind of have to accept, just like Enrique rightly mentioned, that those money going into people's daily lives and providing their security and their welfare they're also inevitably playing up to the feeling that, well, we're doing fine, Mm. right? We're not being isolated from the rest of the world, from international aid, or maybe not even knowing about all those funds coming into the country. They think, well, our government is still taking care of us. So it's a double-edged sword, and it's very difficult to tell. Of course, when you hear about all the sufferings going on on the ground with all the innocent civilians on both sides, we just heard a report from Gaza Strip. It's absolutely heartbreaking. I, it really reminded me of, you know, seeing what's happening on the occupied lands of Ukraine where civilians inevitably get hurt if they don't leave that territory. We have seen the the brutality of the attack on Israel. 
Right now, unfortunately, finances have become a diplomatic tool. And the multinational organizations, as well as the states, are, of course, free to make a decision and whether supply funds or withdraw them. Now, whether the consequences and the the outcome of that decision will play a greater role strategically and will actually help secure peace in the future or put some tough leverage and, and pressure on the actors that need to be kind of reined in. We're yet to find out, but maybe you're right. This is the time when you kind of need to to stop everything to figure out what are the next steps and what is going to be happening in the region. Uh, And, Leona, there's just one final point I want to raise on this, which is the idea doing the rounds in the United States of linking funding to Israel with supply to or supply of funds to Ukraine. This seems to be a way of doing some kind of an end run against the Yahoo wing of the Republican Party, which is now trying to make a thing of taking the money being sent to Ukraine and instead send it to Israel. Is, is that is that accommodation the best Ameri- Ukraine rather can hope for from the United States at the moment? Because the United States is the key outside power in both these conflicts. When I first heard of that statement being made, I, I thought to myself, well, is this really the only way that the biggest nation in Europe will get the funding to keep continuing its war against an imperial aggressor who's waging genocide on our 36 now million people population? It almost sounds really sad and heartbreaking and offensive, to be honest. But then I thought to myself, well, at the state of war, when lies are on the line, I don't have the luxury to get offended, just like Ukrainians don't. So we can only hope that if that helps resolve political turbulence and any electoral waves in the U.S. establishment, so be it. But of course, I would definitely hope that the American people know how much Ukraine is depending on on this aid. Ukraine will inevitably win this war, just like Enrico and I were talking before, before the show. It's just a matter of times and the number of lives that we're going to have to sacrifice for it. Leona Hlivko and Enrico Franceschini, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly. This is The Daily. And let's now look at something else entirely. The introduction of modern technologies into education usually prompts an amount of aggrieved resistance from those who believe that schools should still be thrashing times tables into students using a cricket bat. Never did me any harm, etc. Where chat GPT and other AI tools are concerned, it would seem that the reactionaries have a self-evident point, given the facility with which such things can whip up a plausible essay on whichever George Eliot novel a given fifth former is desperate to avoid reading. And who can blame them? However, some Danish high schools, it says here, are now actually encouraging their students to use ChatGPT. Um, Enrico, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, I must confess that having been, the, uh, having been a bad student myself and having always tried to... Like, like pretty much every journalist, whoever, <laughs> exactly. at least all the good ones, Enrico. It's the, the last refuge of the otherwise unemployable. <laughs> exactly. We are a good company, a band of brothers. But, uh, and uh, trying to always gain advantage uh, in any way possible to pass an exam or something, I... 
I could not say, do not use artificial intelligence. Use it. Uh, why not? Uh, I, I, I tend to believe that the intelligence of a student will come along somehow anyway, if they have good teachers. Um, Alione, you're the only person at this table who I'm sure is not old enough to remember the, the panic that descended in some circles when it, when the, during the advent of the pocket calculator. And there was this idea that this will just destroy the ability of people to do basic mathematics. And the thing is, it kind of did. But there's also the question that used to get asked by people who couldn't be bothered learning arithmetic. Does it actually matter when I've got this now? Well, you would be surprised, Andrew, perhaps coming from behind the Iron Curtain. Um, my time in school in the 90s, I remember when we were strongly urged against calculators that just appeared in independent Ukraine and tried to count everything in your mind. Um, I guess I was lucky enough to catch both to learn the arithmetics, but then also how to use the calculator, including when it came to like logarithms and, and building sine waves, etc. I think we can't close all our children off from technology. It's going to be developing mm. so quickly. Um, and banning it is certainly not an option because we know what happens when you ban kids from doing something. They will go and do it behind your back and get in much more trouble than they normally would. Um, so perhaps... I, I agree. It, it all depends on the teachers. If they teach them how to use it properly, not to just bluntly write essays for them or answer any questions, because, of course, we've noted that AI does get things terribly wrong mm. and completely factually inaccurate. But if we use it for some learning purposes as almost like a, a guide that you could or a point of reference and assistance, that maybe it could be the future of education. I, mean, I, I do wonder, uh, Enrico, and I wonder this on the basis of having had this conversation with people professionally involved in trying to teach people, whether the ironic effect of chat GPT and other tools might actually prompt or to be to prompt a return to old school exams where people do just have to sit down in an isolated space and demonstrate that they do actually know the subject because otherwise how will you know I, I was talking quite recently to a university lecturer who just said yeah all the essays I get now are pretty much transparently written at least to some extent using chat GPT at which point you just wonder well what's the point yeah maybe maybe we will go back as you said, mm. to the past. And, and speaking of the past and speaking of calculators, I wonder if Aliona, at the time in, uh, in Ukraine, to see and remember where in uh, grocery shops, instead of using a, a cashier, uh, at least in Russia, when I was there, it was the same. They counted the money with the, what was it? Abacus. Uh, an abacus. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. No, I, 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 I can remember the abacuses of the just post-Soviet sphere. There again, but I'm so hopeless at this stuff that I don't even understand how abacuses work. It's beyond my comprehension. I have no idea how <laughs> that works. But they were very fast. Yeah. Um, Leona, just, just finally, um, the UK government is trying to nail down a statement by world leaders ahead of this AI safety summit, which is happening at Bletchley Park next month. Um the current issue the issue episode of the foreign desk, if people haven't already heard it, does talk about how artificial intelligence may impact upon diplomacy and the military in future. And I, I do recommend listening to that because we did have some very interesting people on it. But one of the points that got raised, uh, Aliona, and I guess this plays a little bit into uh, Ukraine's current struggle because Ukraine has positioned itself in, you know, as a country attempting to integrate itself into the rules-based order, fighting an enemy... Which 
which simply does not care. And one of the people we spoke to for this episode was the former American general, John R. Allen, uh, who was uh, very... Uh, I mean, he, he he had a very firm line, and I'm sure a very sincere line on on how you know American and Western military forces would uh, attempt to abide by the laws of war where AI was concerned, whatever those laws end up being. But are you then, especially in warfare, at a natural disadvantage when you're up against someone who just isn't interested and will just do what they like? The fact that Ukraine faced is an absolute paradox where we, having been at disadvantage and at war and quite distracted by that war, we have managed to develop quite high-tech um, opportunities that were already implemented within the drones. Um, and I know that that is now being used on the front line. And as they're using it, they're testing it and improving it to the greatest extent. And just three weeks ago, when I was at, at the Defence Equipment and Security Conference here in London, I talked to some of the drone producers from Ukraine. And it's just astonishing of not just where they are, but where they're planning to go mm. uh, with AI and in the weapon system. But certainly some rules need to be made and they need to be made quickly, at least with the framework and, and legal framework, most importantly, because as we're lucky enough that the UK and the US are ahead of the game when it comes to AI, countries like China, for example, or Russia are far behind, but they might just catch up. So it's better to put the rules in place now and hold our inventions, especially the ones that are targeting national security or will affect it in any way, very close and, and confidential while letting it develop, not stall the progress that, you know, all the geniuses are working on right now. Aliona Livko and Enrico Franceschini, thank you both for joining us on The Daily. And finally, on today's show, our On This Day historical feature focuses on the peak of arguably the oddest episode in the modern history of Canada. It seemed to many, then as now, one of the less urgent liberation struggles. Freedom from the iron grip of Canada a model for few, if any, fictional representations of an evil empire. The struggle was waged, nevertheless, to the extent that in October 1970 it appeared briefly poised to bring about the absurd prospect of some sort of Canadian civil war. It was a day of rapid developments here in Montreal, 20 minutes before the last deadline. The organisation at the heart of events was the Front de Libération du Québec, or FLQ. The FLQ had been founded in 1963. In its early years, the FLQ had generally been regarded as a chaotic nuisance, a bunch of angry dingbats who every so often blew up a letterbox and issued another grandiose manifesto. In common with broadly similar organisations which would come to plague Europe, the Baden-Meinhof Group in Germany, the Brigate Rossi in Italy, among others, it has to be suspected that what the FLQ were mostly interested in was blowing things up and issuing grandiose manifestos, and the cause in which they were so doing was, at best, of secondary importance. But like the Baden-Meinhof Group and the Brigate Rossi, the FLQ grew more ambitious and therefore more dangerous. In 1969, the FLQ bombed the Montreal Stock Exchange and the Montreal Mayor's residence and hijacked an American airliner to Cuba, as was the style at the time. But the FLQ was not yet done. The events that became known as the October Crisis began on the 5th of that month in 1970, when the FLQ kidnapped the UK's Trade Commissioner in Montreal, James Cross. 
The FLQ demanded the release from prison of 23 of their comrades, the publication and broadcast of yet another manifesto, a sack of gold, and safe passage to Cuba or Algeria. Most of the populations of either of which it can be safely estimated would cheerfully have traded passports with any citizen of Quebec, however theatrically disgruntled. Some concessions were made. The FLQ manifesto was broadcast by CBC Radio and Television. Le Front de Libération du Québec veut l'indépendance totale des Québécois. It wasn't enough. For melodramatic nihilists such as the FLQ, it rarely is. On October 10th, the FLQ struck again, kidnapping Quebec's Minister of Labour, Pierre Laporte, from his own front garden. This placed considerable pressure on the national government of Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, much of it from Quebecois and Canadian officials and politicians who feared they might be next. Trudeau, himself a Quebecois from Montreal, ordered Canadian soldiers onto the streets of Montreal and Ottawa and offered shortish shrift to reporters who wondered whether this was all a bit un-Canadian. There's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed, but it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to... Uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at any cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. On October 16th, Trudeau invoked the War Measures Act, effectively placing Quebec under martial law and sounding, like many of his fellow Canadians, entirely bewildered that it could have come to this. But Canadians have always assumed that it could not happen here, and as a result, we are doubly shocked that it has. Our assumption may have been naive, but it was understandable. Understandable because democracy flourishes in Canada. The War Measures Act was an extremely blunt instrument. Hundreds of people were arrested, some of whose connection to revolutionary violence was tangential at best, among them the poet Gaston Miron and the singer Pauline Julien. On October 17th, the FLQ announced that they had executed Pierre Laporte. His body was found in the boot of a car. Counterintuitively, what the FLQ may have imagined as a dramatic escalation emphasising their resolve had the effect of terminally shriveling such support as there was for militant Quebecois separatism. Laporte's killers were jailed for life, but paroled, bemusingly early, after barely a decade behind bars. James Cross was released two months later in exchange for safe passage to Cuba for the FLQ cell which had been holding him. The hapless guerrillas found the reality of Fidel Castro's revolution short of the advertising and whined until permitted, as few Cubans were, to leave. They went to Paris but were bored, miserable and homesick. They eventually returned to Canada and served short prison sentences. Not long ago, Pierre Trudeau's son and Canada's current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, briefly invoked the Emergencies Act, successor legislation to the War Measures Act employed by his father in 1970, in response to the siege of Ottawa by truck drivers protesting against vaccine mandates, among other concerns.
Canada, like most wealthy, orderly, secure and generally fortunate countries, still harbours a small cohort of fantasists grimly determined to rebel against wholly imaginary oppression. The October crisis, which peaked on this day 53 years ago with the kidnapping of Pierre Laporte, endures as a lesson in the difficulties that arise when it becomes depressingly necessary to take ridiculous people seriously. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Aliona Livko and Enrico Franceschini. Today's show was produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and researched by Harrison Warlock, our sound engineer, or Sammy Susi. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening.